has changed, it's still the same I've got nothing to say, but it's okay Good morning, good morning We are back. Our theme for this segment, as it has evolved in this program, is going to be where science and politics meet. We traditionally reserve obituaries for the top of segment three, so I think we've got one that'll fit the bill. Since in contemporary America the origins of life has become something of a political issue, the death of Stanley Miller certainly will fit the bill. Dr. Miller's obituary, as reported in uh, The Economist magazine, is, is so excellent that I must quote from it extensively. The headline is, Stanley Miller, Seeker After the Origin of Life, Died on May 20th, Age 77. Biologists often talk of evolutionary theory as though it had solved the mystery of life. It has undoubtedly solved the mystery of how life changes and develops, but has not solved the deeper question of where life came from in the first place. Still, every flash in the pan in the search for the elusive elixir is an excitement and the experiment carried out 55 years ago by Stanley Miller both dazzled the world and defined the career of this keen young researcher at the University of Chicago. In the early 1950s, biochemists had established to their own satisfaction that the most important biological molecules were proteins. They, or at least their component units, the amino acids, must have been present on Earth before life got going. Otherwise, nothing would have been around from which the first living organisms could have been assembled. The question was how those amino acids came into being. That Miller was the person to provide a possible answer was almost a fluke. Originally, he had intended to work under Edward Teller, the inventor of the hydrogen bomb. But soon after he arrived at Chicago, Teller left for California, leaving the graduate student tutorless. Eventually, Mr. Miller persuaded a chemist called Harold Urey to take him under his wing. Urey, too, had been involved in atomic bomb work. He'd won the Nobel Prize for discovering deuterium, the heavy form of hydrogen found in heavy water, which can be used to control and thus harness nuclear fission. But Urey had originally been a zoologist and was keenly interested in the origin of life. In particular, Charles Darwin's musing about life starting in a warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc. present, and thus a protein compound was chemically formed ready to undergo still more complex changes. These thoughts had gone so far as to elaborate into a research proposal. After some negotiations, Mr. Miller persuaded Yuri that he was the one to turn this proposal into glassware and make it work. He thus put together a collection of apparatus that it would not have disgraced the set of a mad scientist horror film. He filled it with a mixture of methane, ammonia, hydrogen, and water vapor that matched contemporary ideas of what the primitive terrestrial atmosphere had been composed of. Heat and electricity was added. The result after several days was a sludgy brown stain at the bottom of the reaction vessel, a stain that proved to contain amino acids. When a production of amino acids under possible primitive earth conditions was published in May 1953, the press went wild. At the time, the experiment looked like the start of something big. Spectroscopic analysis of the atmosphere of gaseous planets such as Jupiter suggested the ingredients used were abundant. The new science of radio astronomy indicated that elements of the recipe were also floating around in space. A meteorite packed with amino acids made a timely landing in Australia. 
Yet the whole thing never came together. It's one thing to assemble the ingredients. It's quite another to bake a cake from them. Part of the problem, although it was not obvious at the time, was outlined in a paper published mere weeks before Stanley Miller's. Compared with the newspaper coverage of the Miller-Urey experiment, a structure for deoxyribose nucleic acid did not attract much popular attention, although its authors have now far eclipsed Stanley Miller in fame. Few then would have noticed the names James Watson and Francis Crick. This paper confirmed that important as proteins were, they were not the essence of life. It is how DNA, the stuff of genes, came about that is the real mystery. It helps to know that amino acids are easy to make, but no primitive life form was ever going to crawl out of one of Stanley Miller's flasks. Of course, having said that, the magazine does note that Stanley Miller went on to perform many variants of the original experiment and eventually got it to produce the building blocks of DNA as well as proteins. It was pioneering, important work to be sure, but ultimately one does have to agree with the magazine. It's one thing to assemble the ingredients, but quite another to bake a cake from them. All right, and in follow-up for our story a few weeks back about uh, melamine-tainted uh, pet food and possibly human food, we have uh, four different articles. First article is by Tony Pugh from the McClatchy Washington Bureau, who noted that the $22 billion dietary supplement industry operates with minimal oversight from the FDA, despite a history of suspect quality and safety. The article quotes former FDA research scientist William Obermeyer, a co-founder of the independent testing firm ConsumerLab.com, who noted that about one in four dietary supplements tested don't meet quality or safety standards. Some are tainted with pesticides, salmonella, glass, bacteria, or heavy metals such as lead and cadmium. Others fail for a variety of reasons, including a lack of ingredients, improper ingredients, failure to break down properly, and mislabeling. Because manufacturers seek low-cost ingredients, Obermeyer said it's a safe bet that some of the tainted products contain ingredients from China, which typically are cheaper. We talked about that with Steve Etlinger, author of Twinkie Deconstructed, a couple months back, about how uh, you know you buy your vitamins from uh, environmentally unfriendly Chinese plants because other countries don't want them. Chris, I, I love the comments of the Wall Street Journal in response to all this. The editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal can be counted on to give a viewpoint like the following. Don't underestimate the power of, of the international marketplace, said the Wall Street Journal. If China wants to keep expanding its exports, it will have to get serious about enforcing health standards. That's reassuring, isn't it? In the future, they're going to have to get serious about enforcing some of these health standards. Well, we certainly hope they're right about that. Uh, we do note that uh, China has sentenced the former head of its food and drug agency to death for crimes related to the scandal over tainted pet food. Apparently, Zhen Zhaoyu headed the agency from 1998 to 2005 and was convicted of taking bribes worth $850,000 from eight different companies in exchange for certifying their faulty products as safe. The harsh sentence is seen as China's way of reassuring trade partners that it takes food safety seriously. Tim Johnson, writing in the McClatchy Beijing Bureau, noted that Chinese pharmaceutical companies have taken over much of the world market in the production of antibiotics, analgesics, enzymes, and primary amino acids. According to an industry group, China makes 70% of the world's penicillin, 
50% of its aspirin, and 35% of its acetaminophen, better known to you as Tylenol, as well as the bulk of vitamins A, B12, and E. The article quotes Liu Lifeng, an aide to the general manager at the Weixing Pharmaceutical Company, who said, We used to only comply with domestic standards. Now we must comply with international standards. Food and drug safety inspectors drop in at the plant from time to time. The authorities come unexpectedly without telling us, added Tian Yumiao, the senior director of the Quality Control Department of Weixing. But the article notes, the inspectors aren't exactly neutral guardians of public health. They work for the city government, which is a part owner of the parent company of Weixing Pharmaceutical. Said Catherine Boer, a food safety expert at Cornell University, that's a conflict of interest right there. You really need a disinterested party involved in inspections. Noted the Chicago Tribune, the Chinese food industry is barely regulated and it's notorious for the kind of filthy conditions found in U.S. plants a century ago. There's simply no way our swamped FDA inspectors can keep up, which, according to Paul Krugman in the New York Times, is just how the Bush administration likes it. Wrote Krugman, this administration is so enamored of the idea that that all government regulation is bad that it actually has reduced the number of FDA inspectors and loosened standards. I've noticed, too, a lot of other countries have uh, have, um, quarantined apparently some Chinese toothpaste that was sent to places like Nicaragua, which is odd that the Nicaraguan health authorities are concerned, and here in the U.S. we are not. We need to run that one down, but we'll see what we can do. Which dovetails an article I read in the Chico Enterprise Record a couple days back. Article by John Helprin noted that a confidential report to the White House obtained by the Associated Press warns that U.S. scientists will soon lose much of their ability to monitor warming from space. Yes, just as the president tries to convince the world that the U.S. is ready to take the lead in reducing greenhouse gases, it turns out the administration is drastically scaling back efforts to measure global warming from space. Global warming is, of course, going to be a, uh, a major topic at uh, the upcoming summit of world leaders taking place in Europe, which we will hopefully talk about on next week's program. Meanwhile, our Defense Department has decided to downsize and launch four satellites paired into two orbits instead of six satellites paired into three orbits. The American Association for the Advancement of Science and the National Academy of Sciences have both cautioned that downsizing the satellite program will result in major gaps in the continuity and quality of data gathered about the Earth from space. We'll continue to follow that one. Final item of the day, I was up in Chico, California earlier this week. Chico, like Davis, is a university town being the home of California State University, Chico. And I had a chance to behold in my visit uh, up there a force of nature that I'd never quite seen before. On Tuesday, a thunderstorm rolled through town, and as I was sitting in the, in the back patio with my brother-in-law, a really bright bolt of lightning came uh, down and struck the earth very close at hand because the, the, the huge thunderclap was just a few tenths of a second behind. I figured the bolt had struck somewhere within, within 200 yards, and indeed, a, a tree, what had been a 75-foot tree, perhaps 150 yards away, had its top just blown right off. Huge branches were all over the front yard of the, the unlucky homeowner, 
And what impressed me was that chunks of wood, like five, six feet long, weighing about 70 pounds, were just, were just, were just strewn all over the neighborhood. One penetrated a roof. One a block away, it smashed part of a tile roof. Another knocked out a street lamp. Within 100 feet of the tree, there was just, just a scattering of 50-cent piece-sized uh, bits of bark and chunks of wood that were, you know, the size of a, I don't know, varying between the size of beer cans and maybe a toaster. It was, to say the least, very impressive. <laughs> Neighbors came out from blocks around to go inspect uh, uh, the scene of the crime. Anyway, I was very impressed by my, uh, my, my visit to Chico. But uh, we are out of time. This program was produced by Ed McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. And I'm not sure whether we got Todd or Ruby coming in here, but at any rate, KTVS's musical programming will now resume. <laughs>